SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Here's Pastor Ben Glucker. Well, thank you, team, for leading us in that. This morning, we begin a new nine-week series in the book of Genesis on the life of Jacob, a series called Struggle and Blessing. Struggle and Blessing. Turn to Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25. Jacob lived a long time ago. He's a real person, lived nearly 4,000 years ago. It would be fair to ask up front, how will Jacob's story help us? It's amazing that we even have it, that we can read this much detail about someone who lived 4,000 years ago, but how, how can Jacob's story help us? Well, let me suggest three reasons to study Jacob together over these next nine weeks. First of all, to know the Bible better, to know the Bible better to know the story of the Bible. You know, the Bible isn't just a collection of stories, although there are many stories in it. The Bible tells us the story, the, the meta-narrative, the big story that all of the rest of our stories find their place in. The Bible tells us the story that makes sense of every other story. And in fact, we could summarize that big story pretty, pretty easily with four headings. It starts with creation. And back in the beginning of uh, January 2017, we started in Genesis 1 and looked through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and saw how God created the world. He created it good, he created it as a wonderful place, a paradise, the ideal situation to live. The first people who created in his image, put there, they are with God, enjoy his company and his fellowship. But then the story changes. If the first uh, heading in the story of the Bible is creation, the second is fall. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God, they're separated from Him, death, sin, suffering enters the world, a curse comes on the world, and we see it immediately after the curse and the fall in Genesis 3, and Cain, in chapter 4, as Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother, then we see Noah in the flood and destruction of the world, except for one family, we see then the Tower of Babel, things are not going well, and then the third heading is creation, fall, redemption. God is going to save a people out of a sinful and fallen world. And we see him choose a people and begin to work through Abraham starting in Genesis 12. And, and the rest of the Bible communicates how God goes about making this people, accomplishing his redemption until the end of the Bible story, which is the consummation, which is inaugurated when Jesus comes the first time and dies on the cross and rises again. And then, of course, will come to its ultimate fulfillment at the end when Jesus comes a second time to establish his kingdom in fullness. Well, well, Jacob comes early in the Bible story of redemption, early in the story of how God is going to save a people for himself, redeem them, bring them to be with him, to enjoy and glorify him forever. Early in that process of redemption, but it's instructive, even though it's so old. Because the second reason to study the Bible, the first is, or to study Jacob, the first was to know the Bible better. The second is to know ourselves better. 
to know ourselves better. Jacob's world is so different from ours. It's so different. It's a different language, different culture, different physical environment, different, different religious environment, a, a different way of life that is, is foreign to us in so many ways. And yet, so much of it is the same. As we look at Jacob's story, we see things like jealousy, disappointment, fear, bitterness, rivalry, despair, emotions, and issues that we know very well today. It's so different than our world, and yet at the same time, so like it, experiencing the same sorts of things. Jacob's life is a mess. His life is a mess. In fact, toward the very end of his life, as you, if you're familiar with the story of Jacob, his son Joseph will go to Egypt, become second in command under Pharaoh, and eventually Jacob will be brought down there. And Jake, Joseph will bring Jacob before Pharaoh as an old man, and Pharaoh will say to Jacob, uh, loose paraphrase, hey, old man, how old are you? And Jacob says to him in Genesis 47, he says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life. Few and evil. Few because he had lived nearly as long as his father or grandfather. And evil really meaning hard or difficult. Jacob's life is a struggle. It's a struggle. He has difficult times. You know, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't, doesn't pull any punches when it talks about its heroes. When we look at the main characters of the Bible, the Bible doesn't spare us the hard parts. They're flawed. Like us, they live in the real world. They have real problems. They fall down. They fail. They struggle. By God's grace, they get back up again. They know what it's like to struggle. They know what it's like to see life not go the way they want it to go. You know, that's, that's not a bad way to describe many of our lives, too. We know what it is to struggle. We know what it is to be disappointed. We know what it is to fall down and fail. So one of the things we'll learn from Jacob, all of his struggles don't stop or prevent God from accomplishing his purposes in Jacob's life. The struggles, the difficulties, the hard times don't keep God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in Jacob's life. On the other side of Jacob's struggles is God's blessing and grace. And we need to hear that. We need to see ourselves in that story too. The third reason to study Jacob is to know God better. To know God better. What we're going to see, even this morning in our passage in Genesis 25, is that the way that God deals with Jacob and his family is a lot like the way he deals with us. He is the same God. And what we are going to find is that the way that God deals with us is really good news. Is really good news. God is extraordinarily gracious. He loves to bless and he loves to show grace towards struggling people who put their hope and confidence in him. Let me say that again. God loves to show grace and blessing to ordinary people who are struggling but put their hope and their confidence in him. I can't imagine much better news than that. That my struggles might not indicate that God has abandoned me, but rather that it's precisely in my struggles and difficulties that I'll find God's grace and God's blessing. So Jacob's life will help us know the Bible and, and know ourselves and know God better.
So let's look at Jacob here this morning, starting in Genesis 25. Genesis 25, verse 19. This is God's word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when the days, her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us now as we look at your word. We need your wisdom. We need your instruction. We need your help. And so I pray that you would be gracious, gracious to give it to us. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, as we look at the life of Jacob, that we would see something of your story, something of your plan, something of your way of dealing with us in your world, that we would learn something about ourselves and our own hearts, and chiefly that we would see something of you. We would see you as you really are, and that we would take delight and hope and confidence in that, that we might honor and glory and trust in you. So I pray you'd bless your word now to our hearts and our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 19 begins, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. These are the generations. That is how Genesis is organized. Some 10 or 11 times we see this, these are the generations. This section, the generations of Isaac, will go all the way to chapter 36, which is where this sermon series will take us. And here it's the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham is foundational to the story of Jacob. So we really need to go back and remember why. Uh, mark this place and turn back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. In the first part of Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve fall into sin, and sin and death, suffering enter into the world. And God begins to curse, first the serpent, and then the woman and the man. And we see in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Starting here in Genesis 3.15, conflict, sin, and death has entered the world, and God is going to begin to deal with it. He promises to deal with it here through the offspring, literally the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. And this seed is, is a, it occurs some 50 times in the book of Genesis, more than any other book in the Bible by a mile. Genesis is very concerned with seed, with offspring, with descendants. Because someday there's going to be an offspring, a seed, a descendant who's going to crush the serpent and put an end to the destruction, sin, and death that enters the world. And so Genesis is very concerned with this offspring that's to come and crush the serpent. The promise is here in Genesis 3, but the subsequent chapters don't offer much hope. 
We get to chapter 4, and the woman has seed. She has offspring. Their names are Cain and Abel. And what happens? One kills the other. So there's a new line. But then in the world, we get to Genesis 6 through 9, and the world is incredibly evil. There's only one family worth saving. Noah and his family are preserved from the flood. We get to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, and the people are conspiring together to make a name for themselves to reach the heavens apart from God. Things aren't going well. But then we get to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God begins to focus in on one person, one man, and his family. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God says, I'm going I'm to start working now, Abraham, through you. You're going to be the family. Your seed is going to be the seed through which I bless the whole world, through which I crush the serpent, through which I accomplish my saving purposes in the world. There's just one problem. Abraham has no seed. He has no children. If you turn over to chapter 15, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision and says, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. Verse 2, but Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. God says, You will have offspring. You will have children. They, they will be as numerous as the stars. My promises to you will be true. And eventually, at the ripe old age of 100, Abraham's wife Sarah gives birth to the child of promise, Isaac. Abraham will have offspring. He will have seed. He will have descendants. God's promises may continue. So we might think at this point, well, now that God's blessing has come on Abraham and a child has come, we might think at this point that everything is going to go great for them now. Finally a son. All the problems are swept away. Everything is cleared up. Now they'll live a charmed life of privilege and bounty and ease as the inheritors of God's promise. But that's not the case. Abram has a son, Isaac. But back in Genesis 25, our passage for this morning, Isaac marries Rebekah when he's 40 years old. And verse 21 tells us Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Here's this barrenness again. His mother, unable to have children until a very old age by God's miraculous intervention. Here it is again in Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. We'll see later on that Jacob, their son's preferred wife, Rachel, she'll have the same issue. It keeps coming up over and over again. Well, Isaac does the right thing. He prays for her and she conceives. Verse 21 tells us. She conceives, though, Verse 26 indicates after 20 years of being barren, 20 years. Some of you know something about dealing with childlessness and infertility. There was a period of time when Kelly and I were first married and we wanted to start a family where we went through a, oh, maybe a year and a half of not being able to, to get pregnant and, 
you know, many people go much longer than a year and a half, but a year and a half is long enough to worry. A year and a half is long enough to wonder, hey, what's going on? Is, are, we, are we ever going to have kids? 20 years is a very long time. 20 years is long enough to, to give up and to despair, to wonder how or if God's promise is going to come true at all. But Isaac prays for her, and she conceives. So now it's all good. Now she's going to have a child. Everything is okay. Except, we go on, her pregnancy is hard. Hard. It's difficult. Verse 22 says that it's a str- like a struggle in her womb. So bad that she goes to inquire of the Lord. I don't know exactly how she does that. Presumably she goes to a prophet. No idea who that would be. But she goes somewhere to inquire of the Lord. And this is what God tells her. Verse 23. Two very unexpected things. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Two very unexpected things. First of all, there are in her womb two nations. Two nations. So twins is a surprise probably in itself, but two nations? Brothers aren't supposed to be divided. Same family. Same nation we would expect. Now, interestingly, Isaac has a brother, a half-brother, Ishmael. They're separate, two nations also. And so it will be with Jacob, or Isaac's sons, apparently. They're not going to be one big happy family. No, there's going to be division. Already in the womb, they're struggling with each other. So severely that, that Rachel, or Rebecca, the mother, is like, what is going on? From the womb, there's struggle. And the second unexpected thing, God tells her, the older will serve the younger. The older child will serve the younger. That may not sound that strange to us. It may not seem like a very big deal to us, but in the ancient world, the firstborn son received enormous privileges and advantages. You wanted to be the firstborn. The firstborn was greatly privileged. That's been true even into recent times in places not so strange and far removed from us. Europe, even a couple hundred years ago, uh, among the nobility, the firstborn son inherits the estate. He works the estate. The secondborn sons or the thirdborn sons, there's no land to buy. The younger sons, they go into the army or they go into the church or a very disproportionate number of the explorers that came to the New World, to the Americas, were second and third sons with no real prospects back home because older brother inherits everything. It's not such a big deal for us today. We have much more opportunity and social mobility, but being the firstborn in the ancient world came with enormous rights and enormous privileges. And God tells Rebecca, before her children are even born, your firstborn son is going to serve the younger son. It's going to be the opposite of what's normal and expected with your kids, contrary to all expectations. So, the time to give birth to these twins arrives. In verse 25, it says, The first came out red, hairy. So they named him Esau, which means red. The second son came out grabbing at the heels of the first. So they named him Jacob. Uh, the meaning of that name Jacob is complicated and disputed, but what's for sure is that it at least sounds like the word for grab. You see what's happening. The first son comes out, and the younger brother's already grabbing at his heel. 
already trying to trip him up, already trying to hold him back and gain an advantage on him. In the womb, in birth, conflict, struggle. Jacob is grabbing and grasping to take his brother's place. Well, as the boys grow up, the differences are magnified. Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He's a man's man. He's a hunter. He's hairy. Likes to kill things. Jacob's quiet, more reserved, kind of a homebody. He stays home, dwelling in tents. And Isaac, verse 28, the father, he, he loved Esau. Esau was his favorite. Everybody knew it. Esau was the favorite because Esau would kill this wild game and cook it, and Isaac loved it. So Esau was his favorite. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Doesn't say why. Maybe because she knew what the Lord had said before these sons were born. So the differences are magnified. The text doesn't say explicitly that this favoritism caused problems, but if we keep reading the upcoming stories, we'll see, not surprisingly, that it does. A family with this kind of favoritism, preferential treatment, is going to be a mess. We'll think about that more next week. God is keeping his promise to Abraham and now to Isaac to give them offspring. The family is growing. Abraham will live to be 175 years old. We know that Isaac's twins were born when Abram was about 160. Almost certainly little Jacob and Esau knew Grandpa Abraham. Heard about the promise God had made to them and God, their plans, God's plans for their people. But they're not yet a great nation. It's just a small family making their way in a foreign land that God had promised to him but hadn't given to them yet. A small family that's known lots of trouble and will know a lot more. There's going to be a division between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. It will mark their relationship. It will mark this family for the rest of their lives and the rest of these stories. And, and at the end of Genesis 25 here, we see a story that illustrates well how it will be. Look at verse 29. Genesis 25, 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which also means red. So I'm exhausted. So he's hungry. I want to eat. Jacob, let me have some, brother. Jacob, in verse 31, says, so sell me your birthright now. That's the kind of family this is. That's the kind of brothers these are. Jacob could just say, hey, sure, man, have some stew. Let me know what you think. Instead, he calculates the situation as an opportunity to exploit and take advantage of his brother. Sell me your birthright now. The birthright was a privilege of the firstborn. Uh, the firstborn would typically get a double share of his father's inheritance. And Isaac, as we'll see in the next chapter, chapter 26, is a very wealthy man. The birthright is something to be valued. It's not a trifle. Jacob wants it. He's scheming to get it. He's found an opportunity. Esau comes in hungry and desperate, and Jacob's got an answer ready. Sure, you can have some of my stew. 
Sell me your birthright. Surely, surely, though, Esau's too smart for this, right? He's not going to sell his birthright for a bowl of red stew, is he? He is. Verse 32, Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? No way is he really about to die. No way is this stew the only food option in his wealthy father's house. No way. It's like when your kids come to you and they're like, I'm starving to death. I'm going to die of hunger. I need a cookie, you know. They're like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're never that hungry. Now, people in this world are that hungry, but our children are not that hungry. Esau's not that hungry. He's not hanging on to the last vestiges of life. He does want stew badly. He's not a child, but, but his answer displays the same short-sightedness and immature greed that children do. His appetites have taken over. He can't see past his next meal. So Jacob says, swear it to me now. Swear it that you'll sell me the birthright for this. And Esau does. Just like that, he signs off on an enormous blessing and he trades it for a bowl of stew. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Oh, the text is terse. Just, just like that. He ate, drank, got up, and went on. Boom, birthright's gone. Just that fast. And the narrator leaves no doubt about how we're supposed to think about this. The chapter in the story ends, thus Esau despised his birthright. He treated it with contempt. He looked down on it as something insignificant and unimportant. He threw it away. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Only a fool looks down on such a great blessing. Only a fool trades them for a bowl of stew. Well, what, what can we learn from this? What do these sibling rivalry, competing, greedy brothers from almost 4,000 years ago, what can we learn from them? Well, much, actually. You know, the New Testament, 2,000 years ago, but 2,000 years after Jacob and Esau, they'll bring these stories back up and apply them directly to the people of that day and to us. We know what it's like to struggle. We know what it's like to face difficulty, to endure disappointment and conflict, much like these patriarchs of God's people knew. We long to find blessing and favor and success and grace and peace. We don't just crave it, we're chasing it. Where does the peace and blessing that we long for, where does it come from? And, and where we're chasing that blessing is one of the most important things about us. Some of us chase it aggressively and earnestly by trying to get and acquire as much as we can position, prestige, wealth, things. And we're eagerly and aggressively after just getting as much as we can. We're going to acquire our blessing by hard work, desert. We're going to earn it. Some of us are past that point. We, we're disillusioned about that. That hasn't seemed to work for us. And, and so instead, we're chasing chasing it indirectly. We're bitter. We, we complain. We resent what others have. We think we've gotten a bad deal. We've largely given up. Our lot is to complain about 
how the blessing seems to elude us. Perhaps others of us are just, we drown our disillusionment with distractions. You know, we, we're escapists. We, we lose ourselves in movies or hobbies or video games or alcohol or porn or, or whatever else can take our mind and attention off the struggles and difficulties and conflicts that we have. We just try to lose ourselves as much as we can and escape from the disappointments that we know. Well, we know what it's like to struggle. We crave a life of blessing. But where do we find it? How is it that our lives are as they are? What is it that we actually need? See, when these stories of Jacob and Esau were first written down by Moses, the children, God's people were on the edge of the promised land, preparing to go in and, and possess the land that God had promised to them. But they had had a hard struggle. You know about their 400 years in Egypt. You know about the slavery and oppression and persecution they suffered. You knew about the difficult 40 years in the wilderness that they wandered trying to get to where God's place of blessing and bounty was. And they faced opposition on every side. In fact, one of the places they tried to face trouble was that they tried to pass from the wilderness up to Israel. They had to go through a, company, or a country named Edom. Edom comes from Esau. The Edomites are Esau's descendants. And so Israel prepared to go through. They sent a message ahead. Hey, will you let your brother Israel, will you let your brother Israel pass through? We won't take anything. We'll just pass through on the road. We'll pay for the water we drink. Will you just let us go through on past you to the land that God has for us? And Edom said, no. No, you can't. And Israel went way around, further out of their way. They knew what it was to face opposition. When they go into the land, they will face more trouble. And this story is reminding the children of Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land, God has given this to you. God has promised this to, to our people graciously, undeservedly, God has promised this to us, even as our enemies around us, like the Edomites, our long, long lost cousins of our great, great uncle Esau, oppose us. God has promised us this. God will provide for us as we go. And we know how it goes. They'll, they'll camp on the land. They're afraid to enter. They face opposition, and God cares for them. So Moses writes the story to remind them Remind Israel of the promise of blessing and grace that God has made to them. God is on their side. God has chosen them. God has graciously chosen them. And Paul in the New Testament will make this same argument to the church. We were earlier in Romans 9, and I encourage you to turn back to Romans 9 again. We read this chapter earlier in our service. But Paul, the great apostle, will, he will bring up the story of Jacob and Esau to illustrate something important about God and his people. We saw in the first few verses of Romans 9 how Israel had failed to believe. They weren't inheriting the promises and blessings. And he makes clear in verses 6 to 8, Paul does, that it's not that God's promises failed. It's just not all the descendants of Israel are, are really Israel. It's those that embrace the promise. Look at Romans 9, verse 6. It's not though the word of God has failed. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. In other words, Ishmael was an offspring of, of, the, of Abraham, but not the child of promise. Verse 8, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return, Sarah will have a son. 
Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul goes right back to the story that we read this morning and says, hey, look, look, the promise goes to Jacob, not because Jacob's better than Esau, but because God chose him. God is determined to shower grace and mercy on Jacob and his descendants. Because Jacob earned it? No. Because Jacob had his act together? No, for sure. We'll see that more and more as we go through this whole series. Jacob doesn't have his act together. His family is a mess. His personal life is a mess. But God is eager and determined to show him grace. We wouldn't do it this way. We just wouldn't. We would give favor to the impressive, to the powerful, to the deserving. God gives it to the unimpressive and the weak and the ones who know they're not deserving. What matters is whether God is on our side. I was reading this week in Psalm 46, and in Psalm 46, the, the psalmist is struggling and dealing with difficult times. And he, he has this uh, line in there where he says, the Lord is on our side. The Lord is on our side. And I thought, boy, that's, that's the question, isn't it? In a life of struggle and difficulty and trouble, the thing we most need to know is, is God on our side? If God's on our side, then we can make it. We can endure. We can persevere. If he's not, we don't have much hope. Is God on our side? So, so who can know that God is on their side? Who can know this to be true? Well, we're in Romans 9. Look back to Romans 8. Well-known verses, Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against god's elect it's god who justifies who's to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of god who indeed is interceding for us who are those who can know that God is on their side? Those who put their trust in Christ. Those who put their faith in Christ can know that God is on their side. That there's no more condemnation for them. That they will be ultimately justified and glorified with Him forever because God is with them because they have put their trust in Christ. That's the one thing that matters. Not your struggles, not your shortcomings. Not all the reasons you can think why God wouldn't or shouldn't love you or show grace to you. What matters is whether we'll stop chasing blessing from someplace other than God and learn to come to Him for His grace. Simply trusting in Christ and embracing the promises of the gospel. God is with those who put their trust in Christ. Unfailingly and gratefully, thankfully, those who know that grace 
aren't those that seem most deserving, aren't those who've earned it, aren't those who have their act all together. In fact, God is often pleased in the Bible, as with Jacob and Esau, to turn our expectations upside down and to show grace and favor to the least likely and least deserving. As we read through the rest of Genesis, we'll see that Jacob's life is a mess. He has lots of trouble. Things happen to him. He does things. Often it's his fault. And yet God's promise is unswerving and unchanging. Even through trouble, God is gracious and cares for him. But we need to draw this to a close. I want to look quickly, though, at one more passage. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer to Hebrews will bring up our story this morning as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 15. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. He brings up a root of bitterness because the earlier part of this chapter is about not growing weary. It's about dealing with the discipline of the Lord, the difficulties that come in our life through which he's shaping us and growing us and making us more like Jesus. He says, so don't, don't let a root of bitterness spring up and give you trouble. By it, many become defiled. Verse 16, that, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He said, what, what an evil thing, he says. Treat his birthright for a meal. He says, for you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I read it to Hebrews and look, Esau wanted a blessing, but it was too late. It was too late. He'd already given it away. He'd already lost it. He'd already traded it for a bowl of stew. He, he had traded God's long-term favor and blessing for immediate short-term gratification. And later, it was just too late. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't you do that. Don't you do that. Don't you abandon God and chase short-term pleasures and short-term gains. He says, what happens afterwards? What happened to Esau might happen to you. You may not be able to turn from that. Listen, if you turn and repent of your sins, God will always have you. But what happens, what happens is sometimes we get so invested in our sin so far in the wrong direction, we just can't turn. Our sin owns us. God will have us. If we repent, God will certainly forgive. But we become so invested. We've chased short-term, temporary, this-worldly pleasures for so long that repentance has become for us almost impossible. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. In other words, today is the day you should turn. Today is the day we should repent. Today's the day we should put our hope in God and His promises. Seek our blessing, joy, and grace in Him rather than the short-term pleasures of this world. Let me ask you as we finish this morning, in what areas are you, what areas are you despising the grace of God and exchanging it for short-term pleasures, short-term gain, for the equivalent of a bowl of stew? How easy it is for us to do. How easy it is for us to suppose that we can, we can spurn God's grace and God's favor, go our own way, chase the offerings of this world, the things that offer no long-term salvation, satisfaction, or joy. Well, you can head down that road, and you can get so far, it's almost impossible to come back. Don't head down that road. No, we, 
repent and turn from that today. We pray with you. Father, this morning, I pray that you'd help us. You are a gracious God to undeserving sinners like us. You've made known your son to us. We have the privilege here that, that millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people in this world don't have to have heard of the grace and salvation found in your son, Jesus. And Lord, we ought to put all our hope in you. We ought to not be instant gratification, short-term gain people, but people that know that our citizenship and our treasure is in heaven. We're laying up treasure there where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. But yet all too often, Father, we, we're seeking satisfaction, joy, delight in this worldly things and forgetting about you. So, Father, I pray for each person here. Lord, I pray that you would bring to our minds and bring to our awareness ways in which we're not trusting you, but rather looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in things of this world. I pray that we would see that, we'd repent of it before it's too late. And that we would seek you with all our hearts and souls and mind and strength. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming this morning. Let me send you out with these words of benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Have a great day.